Hi, and welcome to episode two of the Advisor Marketing Club podcast. And in today's episode, we're talking about understanding Google. If there's an area of internet marketing that's misunderstood and full of unsupported opinions, it's search engine marketing and Google. In today's episode of the Advisor Marketing Club podcast, I'll be talking about search engines, particularly Google, and how their ranking system may work. And I say may because no one knows for sure. It's a bit like KFC's secret recipe. You see, Google doesn't come out and say exactly how they rank websites and determine which ones gets the number one position for a particular search term. If they did that, they'd have more people trying to gain the system. So whilst we know how some things work when it comes to Google, there's probably more questions that are unanswered when it comes to search. Now, when we're talking about search engines, we're talking about things like Google, Bing, Yahoo, those sorts of sites. Sites we go to where we search for something and then click on the search results to be taken to a web page that gives us the information we're after. Today, we'll focus on Google. Why? Simply because they're the biggest. The April 2015 Comscore report into desktop searches shows that 64.2% of searches were done through Google or sites related to Google. Microsoft comes in second place with 20.2% of searches. And Yahoo's third with 12.7% of searches. So as you can see, Google has a pretty dominant position in the area of online search. So to focus on Google makes sense because that's where the bulk of searches will come from. The good news is that the fundamentals of search engine marketing are much the same across all the search engines. So any changes you do to help your Google ranking will probably help your ranking in other search engines. Let's take some time to talk about Google search and how it works. Firstly, Google doesn't make money from the search results. It's free for your website to appear in the search results. But Google does make money, a lot of money, from the other things that it sells. So Google's philosophy is simple. Deliver a search experience that works so that the users are exposed to Google's other products. Now, as I said at the start, no one knows exactly how Google search works, but we can take an educated guess. If I ran Google, here's what I'd look at. Now, when someone types in a search term, I would want to display 10 listings on the front page of the search results that I believe meet the criteria that the person is searching for. And I'd rank the best match at number one and then rank them in order of best matching the search term. Now, in a little while, I'll look more at how a page gets to number one, but for now, let's just focus on the search experience and and this concept. Now, again, pretending I'm Google, I've looked at every web page in the world and worked out what each page is about. And I then match the content on those pages to the searches that people are entering. So you enter a search term like financial advisors in Chicago, and Google will show you 10 sites it thinks will match what you're looking for. Now, say you click through to that first site and it's not what you're after. What do you do? you'll probably click the back button in your browser and go back to the search results and try the site at number two. And if that's not great, then back you go and you'll probably try number three, or you may scan the results and see which one 
looks the most likely to provide you with the information you're looking for. And when you're on that site, you're more likely to view more than one page. Now imagine this process repeated constantly. That's what Google does. So what if 10 people search for the same phrase and are shown the same 10 sites? If they all click back from the first site, what does this tell Google about the quality of the information in that site in relation to the search term? If I were Google, I'd take that as a hint that maybe that page didn't deserve to be in the number one position. What if everyone ended up on the fifth ranked site and then clicked around that site? That's a pretty good indicator that the information on that site is valuable, again, in relation to that search term. So if I were Google, I'd make some changes in the search results for that particular search term, and I'd lower the ranking of the number one site and maybe increase the ranking of that fifth ranked site. Maybe the two sites swap positions. And I'd test that for a while to see how people interacted with the search. At the same time, I'd continue looking over all the websites I was indexing to see if there was other content out there that could better match the search term. And if there was, I may introduce that into the search results. Now, it may not make it on page one. It may be on page five to start with. But we'd watch to see how people interacted with that particular page and perhaps also other pages on the same website. Remember, Google looks at individual pages. If you search for, say, financial planners in New York, Google will display the one page from a site it thinks best fits that search, not the whole site. Now, the quality of the whole website does have an influence on how Google perceives the individual pages, but bad content on a good website isn't going to rate well consistently. The exception to displaying page results as opposed to the whole website or pages from the whole website is when you search for a particular website or company name. In that instance, Google will usually display one main search result with what it's called snippets below it. They're links to different pages on that website. I mentioned earlier about how Google looks over websites around the world. Now let me expand on that a little bit. Google and other search engines have little electronic robots that it sends around the web to look over websites. Now these aren't humans, it's, it's all computerized. And these bots arrive at a website and endeavor to look over every page on that site. They're more active on sites that are popular and regularly updated and less active on sites like yours or mine, perhaps where we're not as popular or not updating content as regularly. So for instance, Google would constantly be trawling the Facebook site and indexing posts as they happen. Obviously, it's in your best interest to help Google index every page on your website and to not miss any. Thankfully, there's a simple way to make this happen. It's possible to set up an automated site map that, as the name suggests, is a map of your site. It lists every page that's on your site, even ones that are hidden away. So if you set up a site map, it automatically updates as you add new content to your site. And the Google bots come along and look at the sitemap and then visit every link on your site that's listed on that sitemap. Now, if you didn't have a sitemap, the bots would only be able to visit pages that they could find. So if you had pages listed in your menu, 
and linked to different pages, say, within articles, the bots could follow that. But they may not be as accurate as they would be if there was a sitemap. And one of the cool things about a sitemap is that it is possible to tell Google to not index a particular page if you want it to remain hidden. Now, technically, this is done via a different file stored on your website, but it's a similar concept to having a sitemap. Now, let's say that you set up a new website and you're starting from scratch. You flick the switch, you publish the site, but Google may not know about it. If your site was then mentioned in a New York Times article that linked to that brand new website, the Google bots would immediately follow that link because they'd be on the New York Times website all the time. And your site would get indexed immediately. Now, we're not always lucky enough to have something like this happen, but there are other ways to promote your site. And we'll look more at this in future episodes. The other thing to consider is what Google seeds when its robots crawl your page. Now remember, they're not humans. They can't see pictures like we can. They see the page code instead. Now my understanding is that Google looks over the entire page content and it's guided by things like the URL of the page. Does that include a particular word or phrase? The use of headings. So there's H1, H2, H3 tags. Words in headings seem to imply that they're important and relevant to the page content. The text. Now, obviously, are there particular words or phrases that are used regularly in this particular web page? Whilst the Google bots don't read like we do, they are able to analyse the text on a page a lot more quickly than we can. I believe that Google's algorithms are set up so they can analyse the text and gain an understanding of what the article is about. Again, it's not as perfect as a human reading it, but certainly they've improved over the years. Images. Now remember, these bots, they're not humans. They can't see the images like we can. So if your entire article is one big image, say an infographic, the bots can't see it like a human can. Now this is a very high-level summary of how Google sees your page. There's probably enough stuff here to devote a future episode to this topic. Now we'll talk a little bit about backlinks. Now backlinks in authority are also quite misunderstood when it comes to websites. Unfortunately, people have tried to gain the system by generating a lot of fake backlinks to try and make their page look more important than it is. Now I'm sure that Google isn't dumb and can figure this out and penalizes those sites. So what's a backlink and why is it important? Think about the academic world for a moment. You publish an academic article on a topic that you're an authority in. Your colleagues like the article, and soon they start mentioning your article in articles of their own. Now, in the academic world, this is called a citation. It's a big honour when people refer to your academic papers in their writings. It's an endorsement by your peers. It can be argued that if a paper attracts a lot of citations from relative other papers then that original paper must be pretty authoritative because it's being mentioned a lot. Now, this is the concept that Google uses behind backlinks. The theory is that if you write an article and a lot of people then link back to that article, then your article, the original web page, must be good quality. The next level to this is the quality of links or backlinks to your article. Now, if they're from a big authoritative site, think like the New York Times or Wikipedia, then they're perceived to be a very strong endorsement. 
But if they're from a smaller site, then that's not such a great endorsement. So maybe one really good link is worth more than 10 other links from smaller sites. There's a theory that the more backlinks to your site, then the more important it is. But I think this is a little simplistic. And whilst Google doesn't reveal its methods, I think it's a bit more advanced than this. Certainly backlinks are important, um, but I do think at the moment Google is more concerned with the quality of sites that link to each other rather than the quantity of sites. Now, again, this is quite a big topic and something we'll look at in future editions of the podcasts. Um, now, again, if you have any queries or questions about this, head over to contarmedia.com, um, go to the podcast episode and leave a, a question as part of the comments and we'll endeavour to get back to you. I mentioned at the start of the podcast about how I felt Google looked at people's search behaviour, in particular how it decides on whether a page ranks high or not. Now, in my opinion, and again, this is my opinion, one of the biggest factors in this revolves around content. It's content that people are searching for online. If they have a problem and want an answer, it doesn't matter whether that answer comes from a billion-dollar company or someone blogging at home in their pyjamas. The right answer is the right answer. So think for a moment about websites that you visit regularly. In many cases, you visit them because they have fresh content each time you visit. A news site is like this. It's constantly updated with the latest news. Now, you don't have to update your financial planning website every five minutes with the latest financial news, and that'd be crazy and a bit of a waste of time. But conversely, you can't just put up a website and never update it. Google has hinted in the past that it likes websites that have fresh content. So you need to develop a strategy for adding content to your site. In a nutshell, you have two options. I mean, option one, create it yourself, or option two, use someone else's content. Now, you can mix these up, so you can do you know, half and half or something like that. An important thing to consider or to be aware of is duplicate content. Here in Australia, there's a number of fund managers and insurers who have created content that advisors can use on their websites. Now, I can take one of their articles and post it on my site. So it does tick the box of being fresh content. The problem is that it's not unique content. It's what Google would call duplicate content. Now, why would they rate that article on my website high in the search results if it already appears on 10 other sites? And which of those 10 other sites should rank the best if they've all got the same content? The answer can be a little bit complicated, but if I were Google, the answer would be something like wherever the article first appeared. So if your site was the first place that the article appeared on, then Google may attribute that article to you and sort of think, well, you're the source of that article, therefore you should rank best for those particular search terms. The problem is that invariably these articles have appeared on the website of the insurer or fund manager first, so they'll probably be seen as belonging to that website. Now it's not that hard to create your own content. The best tip I can give you is to think about the questions your clients are asking you and to write articles that answer those questions. Viewer behaviour is something else that Google will look at. I mentioned earlier about people clicking on a site in the search results and then clicking back straight away because the site didn't have the answer to the question that they had or wasn't what they wanted. Google calls this a bounce rate. A bounce is when someone comes to your site and only looks at one page. Now, whether they're there for five seconds or five minutes, if they're only looking at one page and they leave your site, their class is a bounce. 
If you have Google Analytics installed on your site, you're able to track the bounce rate for all traffic. Ideally, you want the bounce rate to be as low as possible. This means that people are reading one page on your website and then clicking through to look at other pages. This is a good sign of engagement. If I were Google, I'd be rewarding sites that had a high level of engagement and a low bounce rate. This could be a sign that the content is meeting the needs of the reader. One of the big reasons for a high bounce rate is because the content isn't what the viewer was searching for. Another reason could be because of the usability of the site. Perhaps the pages are loading too slowly or the reader didn't see anything else interesting enough to click on. To lower your bounce rate, link to other pages and articles throughout your website. If you're writing an article about retirement planning, then link to other articles on your site from this new articles. Now those links could either be um, in the body of the article, so you refer back to different concepts that are hyperlinked. Uh, alternatively, you could place a related posts section at the end of your articles that lists posts that are on a similar topic. The goal here is to keep people on your site for as long as possible and to keep them engaged and interested for all that time. I mentioned about how Google displays the search results when you search for something. Well, there's actually two types of search result. An organic search result is the standard list of web pages from 1 to 10 with the one that best matches your needs at the top. The other type of search results is the paid search result. This is where you pay money to Google via its AdWords program to appear on the same page as certain search terms. So even if your site doesn't rank well for a particular search term, you can create an ad and, if you pay enough, you can usually appear on the front page for that listing or for that search. Now usually these ads appear at the top of the search results and down the right hand side of the page. This can be a very effective way to get clicks to your site. Now of course you'll be able to track the success of these clicks and see how many turn into subscribers or become clients or buy something. So beware, when someone emails you and says they can get your site to page one on Google, find out what they actually mean. You see, no one can guarantee that your site will get to number one in the organic search results. That's up to Google. In fact, no one can guarantee your site gets to page one of the organic search results. Again, that's up to Google. There are things that you can do to increase your chances of this happening, but ultimately it's not in your hands. It's a bit like financial markets. You know, we don't promise performance to clients because you can't control it. Now, these people that cold call you may actually be promoting an AdWords program where they'll bid on your behalf for advertising using Google AdWords to get your site appearing in the paid listings in these search results. Even then, they may have to bid a ridiculous amount to get on that front page, and it may not be worth it. Local search is also an area that provides a lot of opportunity for many financial planners. Local search is where someone searches for a term and uses a geographical term, like a city, in the search. So go to Google now and type in the search term retirement planning, just straight retirement planning. Have a look at the sites that come up. Now, do the same search, but add in the name of your city after the words retirement planning. So it may be, for me, retirement planning Adelaide. If you lived in Washington, it would be retirement planning Washington. Can you see how the results are different? You see, usually when there's a geographical um, part to the search, 
Google will display a map and list some businesses out with pins on that map. Now, because your business is in that local area, you may well have a better chance of appearing in these search results. And compared to, say, a large national-based firm that doesn't specifically mention your city or, or your town. And to me, if someone's searching for retirement planning in my city, they're probably wanting advice and could be a good client. So have a think about local search. Make sure that you have your address on every page of your website because that's a really good cue for Google to work out physically where your business is located. Mention that you provide financial planning services in your local town or retirement planning in your town. Name the service or product and name the city. Google will put two and two together and then associate your service with that local location. Mobile search. Now there's an ever-increasing number of searches being performed on mobile devices. People are opting for the convenience of searching on their smartphone or tablet device rather than their computer. And you can't ignore this traffic. Did you know that Google displays different search results to people searching on a mobile device compared to those searching on a desktop? Now, a few months ago, Google came out and mentioned that it would change its mobile search results and exclude sites that weren't mobile friendly. What does this mobile friendly mean? Well, your mobile screen on, say, your, your iPad or, or your iPhone, your iPad and so on, it's shaped differently to your computer monitor. So when a site is displayed on a mobile device, a mobile optimised site can change itself to fit on the screen. Now, if your site isn't mobile optimised, then what you'll see is a shrunken version of the full website on your phone. And you have to pinch and expand the screen to actually be able to read anything at all. But if your site is optimised, then it will display frequently like a single column down the page with a text at a readable size. So instead of, say, two text boxes side by side on your normal site, it may display them one below the other on the mobile device. It's a pretty simple concept. If your site can't be read properly on a mobile device, then Google won't show it in mobile search. And I would expect in the future, if the, the past trends anything to go by, there's going to be an increase in mobile search or a steady increase in mobile search. So it does make sense to make sure that your site displays well on mobile devices. How do you do this? Well, look, the simplest thing is have a look at your website on your phone and check how it displays. Finally, I'd like to talk about domain names and URLs. This is another way that Google works out what a particular page is all about. Let's say you write an article all about retirement planning. Now, you might name it something like Retirement Planning for Over 50s. Now, if your site's set up well, then the URL of that article could be something like, say, www.yoursitename.com forward slash Retirement Planning for Over 50s. Google looks at that URL and it takes the hint that this article is probably about retirement planning for over 50s. Now, what if your site didn't display the URL like that and didn't have that title as part of the URL? Now, instead, say the title, uh, the URL, come up with something like www.yoursitename.com forward slash page 45. How does Google know what that page is all about? Well, obviously, it'll still look at all the other factors we've talked about like the page text, um, headings, all those sorts of things. But you're missing out. So you've missed an opportunity to make it more obvious what that page is all about. If you use WordPress for your website, 
structuring your URLs is an easy thing to set up. Um, there's a few different options, and you can select that option to have it your domain name slash post name. So have a look at your website now and see how your URLs are set up. Your domain name is also important. I'll actually be talking more about this in the future because I reckon there's a lot of missed opportunities here with domain names. But look, most businesses I see, you have a domain name that's their business name. I did, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are other domain names and websites you could create that are useful. You see, Google looks at your domain name to get a better understanding of what your site's about. Now, this isn't quite as simplistic as some people think it is. Uh, I had a friend tell me a few years ago all about how I should register a domain name that was the exact match of a search term I was looking to rank for. And if I did that, the Google would just automatically put that domain at number one in the search results because the domain name matched the search term. Sorry, but it's, just, it's not that simple. However, a domain name is a factor in how Google ranks pages, but I'm not convinced it's a major factor. However, the opportunity to create what I call microsites exists. What if you could register a domain that was, say, retirementplanningsydney.com.au, and then you set up a site that had a number of articles all about retirement planning for people in Sydney? What about insuranceadvicechicago.com if you're an insurance advisor in Chicago? Now, there's no guarantee that those sites will get to number one for that specific search term, but they'd probably stand a good chance of ranking well for geographic searches that match the page content. There's no reason that your business can't set up a number of different microsites targeting certain search terms. Now, there's no definite right answer here because we don't know for sure how Google works. Are you better off having one site for your business with all your content on the one site? Or should you set up some different microsites specific to certain keywords so you'd have the same amount of content but it would be spread across different sites? Look, no one can tell you the answer. It'll depend on the keywords, the competition for those search terms, the quality of your articles. It's just not possible to give a definitive answer. But one area we'll look at in the future is keyword research and how to assess your competitors when looking for keywords to rank for. If you have any questions in this area, look, let me know so I can make sure that they're answered when we record that particular podcast. That brings us to the end of another podcast. This is by no means meant to be an exhaustive podcast on how to beat Google. It's just not meant to be that. What I've wanted to do is give you an overview of how I believe Google works and the important things you should be thinking about when it comes to your financial planning website. As I mentioned, there's plenty of things here that we'll look at in more detail in future podcasts. Maybe you have questions from this podcast or you're unsure about something I've spoken about. Head over to contarmedia.com, go to the contact page and send me a message. Can I ask you to do one last thing? If you've received some value from this podcast, could you please rate it on iTunes? This is a good way for us to build up social proof and it helps other people decide to subscribe as well. And if you've enjoyed this edition, please don't keep us a secret. Tell your friends and colleagues and introduce them to our podcast. And remember, if you head over to contarmedia.com, you can also subscribe and all our subscribers get the free ebook, which is our little black book of digital marketing tools that we use 
uh, which is a great way to get started um, if you've got a website or looking to design a website. It shows all the tools we use for our website, social media, and so on, and really valuable um, to financial advisors. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Alan Ward, and you've been listening to the Advisor Marketing Club podcast.